What to do, fam? Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. It's been a mythnet since I've been on here. Graham, leave that pun in. Uh, since I've dropped an episode, there's been a lot going on in my life, but one of the big events that has happened recently is I spent four days in the darkness. And today I'm going to read that story from the article that I wrote because that's how I integrate these experiences. Is your boy writes. So before we get into that, if you want to keep up with what I'm doing, go to ericgotzi.com and get on the newsletter. And uh, yeah, I got some courses on there. They're dope. They help. And uh, I don't spend a lot of time on Instagram lately, but you can also follow me there. So without further ado, here's the trip report from the darkness called Four Days in the Dark. Once upon a time, there was a man who figured out why we were all so unhappy. He helped a lot of people in his life, and before he died, he told his friends not to make statues of him, because he wasn't special, and that every living being could do what he did. Well, you know how we do. We made statues anyways. One of these statues was a nearly 10-foot-tall golden Buddha built in the mountains of Thailand. It sat in the center of a great temple where generations of monks prayed and meditated. The wave of war eventually came to the walls of this temple, and the monks did not flee and they did not fear. They did, however, cover the Buddha in mud. They knew the warriors came for gold, not earth. Tragically, all the monks were killed, but the Buddha went unnoticed. Centuries passed, and eventually monks returned to the temple. And as the legend goes, one day a young monk was meditating at the base of the mud Buddha. His meditation was challenged by the strong scent of the previous night's rain. When he opened his eyes, he noticed a shimmer of light breaking through the crack in the mud. Later that day, all the monks at the temple gently began to wipe away the mud to reveal a grand, blazing, golden Buddha. The story is told as a parable for beginners on the Buddhist path. The student is told that she is the muddy Buddha, that in her, beneath her distracted mind, her personal history, her pain and her pleasure, sits a shimmering, golden Buddha nature. The darkness retreat is a way to notice. What brought me to the darkness? I've been a student of psychology for nearly 15 years, and the most mysterious and mystical aspect of the psyche is what Carl Jung called the unconscious. He once attempted to define it. Quote, If it were possible to personify the unconscious, we might think of it as a collective human being combining the characteristics of both sexes, transcending youth and age, birth and death, and for having at its command a human experience of one or two million years, it would be something practically immortal. If such a being existed, it would be exalted above all temporal change. The present would mean neither more nor less to it than any year in the hundredth millennium before Christ. It would be a dreamer of age-old dreams and owning to its limitless experience an incomparable prognosticator. It would have lived countless times over the life of the individual, the family, the tribe, and the nation, 
and it would possess a living sense of the rhythm of growth, flowering, and decay. Unfortunately, or rather let us say fortunately, this being dreams. Fuck. What Jung is trying to say is that there is a God in us, more dynamic and multifaceted than any book or sermon could ever describe. This God lives in us, is us, and speaks to us every night through our dreams. And you get to have a relationship with it. I am in love with this two million year old being. My life, in one sense, is my love story with this being. I'm reminded of Laura Huxley's book, This Timeless Moment. This book is one of the greatest love stories that I've ever read. To this day, I still cry whenever I feel into her masterpiece. The genius of her work is that she wrote from the perspective of someone in love with the protagonist, her husband, Aldous Huxley. Most of our stories in the West, our narrator is quote-unquote objective, whatever the fuck that pretends to mean. Not Laura. She was passionately in love with the subject of her story. Through her words, the reader, you fall in love with Aldous Huxley. This is how I aspire to write about the unconscious. The unconscious is the thing that we dread when we think about spending many nights in the dark. What I hope to show you is that your unconscious, this inner God under the mud of your identity, is beautiful, here to help you, and once trusted and accepted will become the great lover of your life. The darkness retreat, in some sense, is a date with the unconscious. What is a darkness retreat? A darkness retreat is when someone spends an extended amount of time in a room engineered to be completely devoid of light. It is surprising to people how hard it is to create a structure that keeps out all light. Caves, basements, and or excellent engineering is required. Most modern darkness retreats are between three to seven days. However, Tibetan darkness initiations are typically seven weeks. Some Chinese Buddhists will do 100 days in the darkness. There are even examples of cultures where extended time in the darkness can span, and this is for the Koji people who report that their high priests will spend, get ready for this, the first nine years of their life in darkness before entering the world of light. I'm going to go away from what I've written and just put an asterisk here. These people claim that when they find a newborn that is of a lineage to become a shamanistic type of priest, they will be raised in complete darkness for almost 10 years. And the idea is that you can create a type of being who, when they're in what we call the default world, they can interact with it like that's the dream. And that the dream world is actually the true world. This will make more sense as we go through what happens when you do the darkness retreat. These retreats are normally done under the supervision of a teacher who checks in each day and brings food. The next question most people ask at this point is, why the fuck would anyone want to do this? In lineages like the Tibetans and the Chinese and the Koji, who have used darkness for thousands of years as an initiatory ritual, they believed this kind of practice under the supervision of a teacher was capable of unlocking new skills, perceptions, 
and types of consciousness that those cultures admired and wanted their elders to have access to. Another profound reason they did this was because of a peculiar physiological response that occurs in the body after three to four days of complete isolation from light. The brain begins to secrete amounts of DMT similar to when we vividly dream. After about three or four days, the darkness begins to illuminate with an inner light, literally, and visions begin. For Westerners who have been tragically severed from the language of the unconscious, which would be things like dreams and symbols and somatic feelings, this will seem like a kind of meaningless hallucination chasing. But for those lineages that understood that these visions were a kind of portal to the interior world, a world where their ancestors lived, where their gods, demons, and heroes of lore and legend resided. They understood that the darkness was a bridge to the, quote, two million year old, unquote, inside of us, who guides all of us. The darkness retreat is an ancient psychotechnology to help bring the ego and the unconscious into deeper, intimate union. And for people who live in our modern Western culture, I think this is one of the greatest psychotechnologies that we can weave into our lives to help us begin balancing the scales of a culture that denies its interior world. The gift of the dark is that it forces the Western mind to stop doing. And when we stop doing and begin to deepen into a state of relaxation, we may have not known our entire adult life one of the most profound secrets of life begins to reveal itself. When we really, finally, stop trying, another force comes through us to meet us. This force knows exactly what we need and it gives it to us. And what we need will probably break our hearts. And when it does, after the grief and the anger and the weeping, we will find ourselves refreshed, reborn, and renewed. The secret to healing is finally feeling whatever it is that you have spent your life trying not to feel. Once that is done, we can start the next stage of the spiritual journey, which is to engage with life, to bend the bow of our being towards improving this broken, beautiful world for the following generations. Ken Wilbur spoke true when he said, quote, as the modern wisdom holders, we need to help people find what's important. We need to help people grow up by moving through the early stages of emotional maturing, and then clean up by doing our shadow work, and then wake up by doing our spiritual practices, and finally to show up in the world by serving humanity through doing. My Darkness Retreat they say the ceremony begins the moment you commit. So you could say that my darkness retreat started three years ago when my friend Aubrey asked me to come on his podcast and interview him about the recent darkness retreat that he did in Germany, which happened just before COVID-19 hit the world. After that two-hour podcast, I knew that I would be going on my own journey into the dark someday. COVID came and went in its enigmatic way, and I finally found a retreat center stateside that was open for business. February 18th, 2023 was the date available. 
I would be flying to the mountains of Oregon to spend almost 96 hours in a little room completely void of light. If you actually go to the article on my website, you can see a picture of what it looked like. It's pretty cute. I officially booked this trip late December 2022, and I did a great job disassociating from it until about a week before I was to leave. It wasn't until I started explaining to people what I was doing that it began to set in for me. So much of our worlds and ourselves are a collaborative construction with other people. Every time that I would describe the darkness retreat, I'd slowly watch the shift in energy on people's faces. They'd melt from curiosity to a kind of fascinated disgust. I suppose this is the tension we feel when horror fascinates us. Most people I described this practice to flat out said they couldn't do it, that they would go mad before the first day ended, etc. The truth was, I was excited. I knew that this would be an opportunity to both rest and to hang out with my unconscious. I knew my dreams would be potent and that some new layer of my evolution was waiting for me. Because of a certain medley of genetic luck and acquired skill, my mind and I get along well, and we excel as a team when we enter non-ordinary states of consciousness. But after the third friend responded to my description of the darkness with subtle horror, I thought it was time to begin preparing. Preparing for the darkness. Whenever I'm about to do something like ayahuasca, a darkness retreat, or a solo sabbatical, I change a few habits that signal to my entire inner system that we're about to move into sacred space. Number one, disconnect from all social media. It is so hard to appreciate just how massively and insidiously our social media platforms distract us, warp our perception, and cheapen our dopamine reward systems. What most people do not understand is that social media is a competitive game, and each of us are competing, not against each other, but rather against AI. The networks of code that make up each platform's attention optimization algorithms are computer programs designed by geniuses to maximize the amount of your life force, your attention that you give to these platforms. In 1996, the greatest chess player in the world Gary Kasparov lost to IBM's Deep Blue computer. For the first time in history, a computer beat a chess grandmaster at chess. Kasparov knew that he was playing a game. He knew the rules of the game, and he was a grandmaster at it. He knew that he was actively competing against Deep Blue. And the computer program he lost to was orders of magnitude weaker and less sophisticated than the algorithms that govern modern social media. And most of us don't know that we're playing a game when we log in. We don't know the rules of the game and we are not grandmasters. We don't know we're actively competing and we don't know who Deep Blue is. Social media is a new generation of gods that we're just beginning to notice. I use social media, but I know what it feels like when it starts to use me. So whenever I begin to settle into a transformative experience, I get off all of that shit. Instagram, Twitter, WhatsApp, Reddit, Telegram, etc., etc. It is glorious, and if you haven't tried it, I'd highly recommend it. Number two is to close all social open loops. So this is kind of a magical spell that's backed up by some science, and I'm going to highly recommend it to people who feel overwhelmed when they try to travel. 
This is where I go through my email and my text messages and I make it clear to everyone that I'm close to, that I'm not going to be available and I won't be available until insert some date that's a good four or five days after I get home. Uh, to all my friends that are listening to this, um, please don't do the math on the dates that I've given you. Okay. So I can settle in before returning to the world of dinners and workouts and podcasts and interpersonal drama that we use to not face our dharma. But this is an important one for me. I don't know what has happened in the last few years, but I have more people who I love and who love me, who I want to connect with and who want to connect with me than I have hours in a week. My quote unquote dirty room in my psyche are my text messages and my emails. Whenever I open them, a pile of guilt and shame comes to meet me, giggling. I know at some point in the future that I will figure out how to navigate this, but right now, I haven't. So what I do is I send a mass email or a post on Instagram to let everyone know that I won't be using my phone for a few weeks. I then make a list of all the people that I will need to reach out to when I am back, and then I don't think about it again until after my experience. It may surprise people, but the scientific research on open loops is clear. All you need to do to reduce the cognitive stress of an open loop, which would be something like, I need to return a phone call or a text message to this person or that person, is to write it down somewhere where your brain trusts that you will come back to it and you will do it at some point in the future, even if you never do it. Your brain will relax if you write it down on a piece of paper and your brain believes that you will use that piece of paper to remember. It's a cheat code. For those interested in experiencing what a mind completely clear of all open loops feels like, check out David Allen's book, Getting Things Done. The average person has between 250 and 500 open loops and every open loop eats cognitive energy. So just imagine what it could feel like if you've never felt having all your open loops removed. And the first chapter of getting things done will help you do that. Well, not the first chapter, but the first step, which is where you write down every single open loop in your life. Graham's done it and he's, he's in love with it. So, okay. Number three, pack. I imagine packing as a kind of ritual where I get to give a gift to my future self. My physical aesthetic is minimalism, so I don't pack much, but I try to pack things that I know will give me a lot of joy. For this adventure, the key item to pack was a voice recorder. I bought a portable Rode handheld voice recorder and used some black tape to cover the screen on it and to cover the recording light. I practiced using the machine a few times and made sure I had extra batteries. Practicing and preparing this was the moment I felt myself really enter into this experience. So with my withdrawal from social media, the closing of my social open loops, and the packing of my voice recorder, it was motherfucking time to go. Day one. The first day was a whirlwind of activity. I flew into Oregon by 11 a.m. and was greeted by the founder of the retreat, a kind, contemplative man named Scott. After about a 40-minute drive into the mountains, we eventually arrived at the retreat center, and it was breathtaking. He and a few dozen other families had populated the side of a gorgeous mountain with farms, cabins, roads, greenhouses, and places for children to play. They even had a full, 
lively, flowing river cutting through the property where they hand-built one of the most beautiful saunas I'd ever seen. It was incredible. Practice run. As they prepared for my full immersion, I got to do a two-hour practice run in my light-deprived room. Before closing the door and turning off the lights, I took a moment to appreciate the layout. I have a link in my article that is a short introduction video to what it looked like. So if you want to check that out, check it out. I had a little area to kneel and eat, a six-by-six rug to stretch and exercise, a nice-sized bed, a meditation cushion, a tub, and a little bathroom. No shower, though. After circling the perimeter a few times like a house cat in a new home, I turned off the lights and entered the void. No light is a different dimension than dark. No light is to dark what scuba diving is to light rain. No light has a kind of amusingly terrifying feeling to it. On one level, Having my eyes open but unable to discern my hands one inch away from my eyes was scary. But on the other hand, pun intended, to know that I was in a beautifully built structure engineered to provide this experience and that there were kind and competent people living on the other side of the wall, here to help me if I needed it, wrapped the fear and excitement. As I laid there in the darkness, just in my two-hour practice run, a slice of my thoughts looked like this. What the fuck am I doing? God, this is so cool. Why the fuck am I here? Wow. This is fucking incredible. Eventually, my mind calmed down and I began to notice my body. There was so much tension in my jaw. And I slowly realized that I hadn't set an intention for the darkness yet. Something intuitively arose and I said out loud to the void, My intention is to remember the resonance of my true voice. I know that my stutter is a message notifying me that something is out of balance. I am here to remember. I've had a stutter since the first dawn of my consciousness. Some periods of my life, the stutter is so quiet, most people don't even realize that I have one. And at other times in my life, the stutter is so loud that it becomes the topic of conversation in groups. At the time of writing this, I'm in a period where my stutter is prominent. As a writer and speaker, it is one of my more frustrating obstacles. And so my intention was to deepen my relationship with this aspect of my being. After the two-hour test run, I asked to use the Wi-Fi at the main house and so I could send a see-you-on-the-other-side-baby message to my fiancé. After receiving some sweet blessings from her, I returned to my room. The last thing on the docket before the darkness was a, quote, session with Adrian. Didn't know what that meant, and frankly, I wouldn't have understood it if someone had tried to explain it to me. Pre-darkness craniosacral therapy session with Adrian. A woman entered my little abode around 4 p.m. with a massage table, some blankets, and a warm smile. She had blonde dreads down past her shoulders, and as she set up her station, she told me about her travels to India, her three-year-long meditation retreat. Yeah, hear that again. A continuous three-year-long meditation retreat and the synchronicities that brought her to this Oregon mountain, helping people connect to themselves before they go into the darkness. 
Our world is teeming with bodhisattvas without Instagrams. She said, for the first part of the session, we're just going to talk. I'm going to listen. And while I won't ever force you to share, I'm going to feel for the pieces and the places that you don't want to go and that you don't want to talk about. And I'm going to cozy up around them like a cat rubbing your leg. Because the more you trust me, the more we will find in our intimacy together. For the next 30 minutes, I felt her gently, hypnotically induct me, and I began sharing with her some of what I was feeling. One of the first things that stumbled out of my mouth was, quote, I feel like a fraud. Wow. The moment I uttered that, I began to laugh and cry. A weight I hadn't noticed floated away from the top of my shoulders. I felt more free and more relaxed than I had in weeks. What I realized is that I struggle being seen as a teacher. And yet one of the activities that I love most in life is the act of teaching. The fraudulent feeling has recently arisen because of the scope of what I've started speaking about. I talk about existential threats, creating new myths, building future cities, and about a new mental health paradigm. These are the kind of ideas that light me on fire. But to the degree my audience responds to these ideas with admiration and not collaborative participation, I feel like a fraud. I feel like a boy who has woken up on a bus without a driver, and I'm trying to wake the other kids up on the bus so we can figure out what to do. But whenever I try to wake them up, they listen for a moment, and because I'm able to explain it well, they assume someone else must be taking care of it and they slip back into sleep. I am not the bus driver. The problems I see require communities, not kings. So gem number one, collected. A part of me feels like a fraud. Eventually, we moved to the second part of the session, and this is where I laid down on the massage table as she gently held my feet while she continued to ask me questions. A part of her magic is that she seems capable of noticing the subtlest changes in breath and posture and will call out, quote, right there, what happened, the moment she notices a change. And with that fish hook of a question, she is able to pull out amazing material. Once on the bed, the first fish she reeled from my unconscious was the 18-year-old teenager whose dreams of playing professional basketball had ended with rotator cuff surgery. She helped me connect to the profound grief that I had at this time because I felt like a kid on a bus with no drivers. I felt alone during the hardest period of my life. There was nothing to do and nothing to fix. I simply felt fully the grief that that young man felt. Tears poured out of my eyes. It felt sweet and it felt good to admit that grief was still in me for that time period. Next, I connected to my five-year-old self. He too felt the absence of a parental competence that he could surrender into. At five, I felt, at least emotionally, like I was largely responsible for my parents' mental states. As I began imagining my present self playing with that five-year-old, I began to touch an unbelievably intense rage. I imagined how easy it would have been for the 32-year-old man that I am now to have a five-year-old boy and to take him outside and to play with him. 
I saw how I'd respond to him if he were scared or if he felt shame. And as I saw the goodness of my 32-year-old self playing with my five-year-old self, the fire of the rage flickered and Adrian noticed. There, what was that? I feel a rage inside me. I see myself screaming as loud as I can. And I'm screaming at God. I'm mad at... I'm like, do you see how easy this would have been to give me? It would have been so easy. She began to tenderly suggest that I actually scream. And I quickly began to explain to her the spiritual reasons why I don't actually blame God or my parents. That I understand why things played out the way that they did. How I wouldn't be who I am today if it hadn't happened. Blah, 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 blah. She kept her word and she tenderly circled around the place in me that I didn't want to go. And she said, quote, Sometimes when we touch a place in us where there is an incomplete process, we may feel the urge to do something that would complete the process. Often when people feel this, and I'm not saying this is true for you, but often when people feel this, they begin to overlay that genuine feeling with spiritual stories about why their current evolved selves don't feel those feelings. And I just started laughing. She was exactly right. And so I agreed. I do it. I closed my eyes and I relaxed back into the memory. I found the place in me that felt the rage. As I connected to it, I felt the muscles in my core start to tighten and a radiating pulse began emanating from my core that slowly tensed all the muscles of my body until the wave finally met my neck, my face, and my head. And once every muscle in my body was tight, I let out a guttural scream. I could tell that I startled her, but by the time that I ran out of air, I was left with a calm, euphoric, buzzing peace in my body. I was subtly vibrating throughout my body and I felt incredibly, deeply relaxed. Another wow. I had no idea that level of emotion was living inside of me. As we closed the session, I could see my 18-year-old self in a sling and my 5-year-old self boy gather around a fire with me and my friends. We were all talking and laughing with each other, telling stories and hanging out. They were home. And we were about to put the fire out and be with the darkness. The session was complete. We shared a little conversation as she packed up her portable temple. Scott came by to start a fire and drop off dinner. And it was a final buzz of commotion before the four-day silence. Once they left, I sat down to eat my dinner. When the food was done and after a little prayer, I turned off the light and officially started my four days in darkness. That first evening, I figured out to use my foam roller as a walking stick. This was very, very helpful. Anyone who's ever going to do this, highly recommend it. I drew a bath, I relaxed in the tub, brushed my teeth, and then laid down to my first long night of complete black. I was asleep before I knew it. And just to make it clear on this first day after they left and I started to eat, I was in complete darkness. And so we're fucking in it. All right. Day two, I dreamt a lot the first night. I must have awoken from a dream and fallen back asleep like six or seven times. 
One of the first things that I noticed was how vividly I could recall my dreams because I could see in the dream. When we first wake up, if we have the presence to notice, there will be some thought, some image, some sentence, or some scene on the horizon of our conscious mind. This twilight zone is where the unconscious creeps over the edge of the veil into the conscious. Dreams are the entities of the twilight horizon of consciousness, and waking up in darkness made it way easier to catch these phantoms because the canvas of being was blank when I awoke. While none of my dreams that first night felt particularly important, the overall vibe was playful. Eventually, I decided to get up for the day, and I made my bed, and I did a little good morning meditation where I took a slow, conscious moment to say good morning to each part of my body. And then I started foam rolling, slowly moved into a light workout, and then sat to eat a little breakfast. The dinner from last night was purposefully large so that we could use it as food throughout the next day. This allowed the owner, Scott, to come drop off food only once a day for dinner. I enjoyed some chia pudding and apples, and then I sat down for my first quote-unquote real meditation. Since the beginning of 2023, I've been getting interested in Buddhism, specifically Dzogchen. The essence of this lineage resonates more with me than anything else that I have found in my life. The summary of what resonates with me the most is, one, the core of the game of life is learning how to use the mind. Two, the habitual mind, thinking without noticing that you're thinking, is the root of suffering. Three, there are psychotechnologies that can notice and relax the habitual mind. Four, the higher horizons of these psychotechnologies are real, teachable, and livable, aka not bullshit like some religions. Come for me. Okay, number five. Knowledge is accumulative, wisdom is subtractive, meaning we learn by acquiring more concepts. For example, we learn words, then sentences, then paragraphs, but wisdom occurs through subtraction. I am not my thoughts. I am not my feelings. I am not my identity, etc. Number six, Buddhism is an unbroken 2,600-year-old school of teaching these psychotechnologies. Number seven, Buddhism is currently the most translatable wisdom tradition into the modern scientific worldview, meaning we can measure the claims and the results have been significant. Number eight, Dzogchen specifically has no theology or dogma. It is something that can be directly experienced. Again, crucial. Number nine, the result for me is a practice that feeds in me the kind of being they call a bodhisattva, which is the most inspiring hero archetype that I have found in all of the world mythologies. And number 10, I really like the art. The essence of Dzogchen is to use insight to cut through the illusion of duality and to enter into a kind of non-dual awareness that is called emptiness or nothingness. When I meditate, I use a 108-notch mala bead necklace where each time I move to one bead, I re-enter the non-dual awareness, eventually notice that I've wandered out of it within seconds, and then I bring my awareness back to the non-dual awareness. And whenever I bring it back, after having lost it, I move to the next bead. I rarely have the discipline to make it through my entire necklace. It takes between 45 and 60 minutes, and frankly, I've only done it a few times, ever, fully. But whenever I feel worn out, like halfway through, 
But if I'm being honest, probably a quarter of the way through, I switched to a mantra practice, much like transcendental meditation. That for me is easy and relaxing and puts me into a trance state. When I finally finished and got up to go to the bathroom, I noticed something interesting. I could feel a subtle aching sadness at the edge of my awareness. I ignored it and I kept doing my quote unquote spiritual activities. I foam rolled again, did another light workout and snacked a little more. While quote in these practices, I felt great, particularly eating. In the darkness, the taste and the smell of food was blissful. However, after my second meditation, I realized that I was participating in a kind of spiritual trap, a modern spiritual trap. I began to put some puzzle pieces together and I noticed a pattern. We grow up feeling something is wrong with life. We eventually find a spiritual path that begins to help us feel more at home in the world and our bodies. It can be meditation, psychedelics, exercise, tantra, indigenous wisdom, occult magic, breath work, diets, or one of the many religions with a complete cosmology and a set of rituals. As we begin to live these practices, we begin to feel ourselves healing. We begin to process repressed emotions, begin to access non-ordinary states of consciousness, and we start to feel good. But the moment any of these practices start to become something that we reach for in order to not feel a certain way, our spiritual practices become coping strategies. This is a subtle line that only we can discern for ourselves, but as soon as we use our spiritual practices as an ego checklist, you can fall into this modern spiritual trap. I realized by mid-morning on day two that I was using my spiritual practices to avoid feeling whatever this sadness was. So I decided to stop and just to lay down without a plan. And within minutes, tears began streaming down my face. The sadness was that I missed my partner, my fiance. I intuitively felt the urge to begin speaking out loud and I began to voice how much I missed her as if she was there. As I spoke my love for her, I cried so much my tears began to fill my ears. I began to realize that the most important thing in my life right now is to nurture the space between her and I that we call our relationship so that we can create the soil to grow the seeds that will be our children. And I noticed a trap that I was slipping into. Because the most important core of my life currently is my relationship with Caitlin, I saw how my subtle addiction to work was pulling me away from meeting her intimately. I have stories that I need to grow my business, solidify my vocation's craft, and create more material security for our relationship. But sometimes I do so at the expense of living and appreciating our relationship now. I began to see scenes of moments where I chose to work instead of going for a walk with her or how I wasn't totally present when she shared a dream or a story with me, or how I'd rather work than go on a spontaneous adventure over the weekend. I got to taste the potential timeline where this unconscious pattern, my work addiction, ate the living joy of our relationship. Like Scrooge's ghost of the Christmas future, I got to feel that tragedy. The poor man who worked so hard for his family only to find his wife had left him and his children resented him. 
And I could feel my psyche digesting this timeline with awareness and that my grief was the psychological enzymes breaking down this potential timeline and my tears were the byproducts of this breaking down. The darkness is a great teacher. By simply relaxing, my unconscious was able to bring me this realization. By relaxing and putting down my spiritual practices, I was able to grieve. And with perfect timing, there was a moment where the grieving felt complete, and I was left in a little puddle in the dark, curled on my bed, completely at peace. And I eventually fell into a deep nap. I knew the first midday nap was going to be when the darkness retreat would really start. You know what it's like to take a nap, a multi-hour nap during the day, the kind of nap that when you wake up from it, you don't know who you are or what day it is. Well, imagine that kind of nap in complete darkness. I woke up in the void, completely unaware of what time it was. I checked the food slot to confirm dinner had not come. It hadn't. And deducing that it must be mid-afternoon, I slowly ate the rest of the food that came the previous day. It was fucking fantastic. The soup specifically was a lifetime event. I sat on the floor, hunched over my little canister of stew, exclaiming verbally out loud to the gods the rapture of my feast. I realized once I finished how much fun I was having and how the sadness that had permeated the darkness was no longer present. What giggled in its place was a childlike playfulness. For the next few hours, I simply laid in bed and let my mind rest and do whatever it want, allowing it to simply notice whatever random images, thoughts, songs, fantasies, or jokes arose, like little letters in a bottle sent from my unconscious. Eventually, I heard the latch of the outermost door open. That meant it was evening. It was dinner time. I felt a surge of euphoria rise in me as I heard the previous day's containers being removed from the food box as the new food replaced their spot. Scott shared a little gem with me before he left. He said one of his favorite Buddhist quotes was, quote, Enlightenment is neither gradual nor immediate. It is timeless. I let that quote roll through me as I drew my bath. I let it massage me as I soaked in the hot water. I laughed at it while I brushed my teeth, and I cuddled it as I laid down for sleep at the end of my first full day in the darkness. Day three. I had a dream that I was in an expensive hotel suite. It felt like I was with a group of friends I had worked with in real life. They were all about to lay down for a sound healing. Everyone was in sleeping bags waiting to receive medicine music from a beautiful singer. She was in the room now. She looked like a Colombian singer that I know in the waking world. Beautiful, powerful, and deeply connected to her indigenous lineage and the rituals of her native Colombian land. She began to tell me excitedly how her recent album made it onto the front page of the New York Times. She said it in a kind of sheepish voice, so I told her to say it again. She could feel what I was doing, that I was inviting her to step more into owning this incredible accomplishment. I asked her to say it three times in total, and by the end of the last quote onto the front page of the New York Times, end quote, she was beaming. It felt like she had been activated, and I suddenly realized everyone in the room could hear us. We're waiting for us to stop, and although I noticed this, I didn't feel embarrassed. 
I felt proud of being witnessed in what just happened. As the singer began to prepare the sound healing, I looked down and I realized I was wearing ceremonial clothing. And I instantly understood I had just finished my own sound healing earlier and that I was going to go outside and explore while they all journeyed. I felt a strong desire to go eat a nice steak. And then I woke up. I didn't realize it then, but in hindsight, this is clearly a dream revealing my psyche beginning to work through my intention. My intention is to remember the resonance of my true voice. That's a hint for you dream interpreters out there. If anyone wants to break that down and send me an email, go for it. Okay. The alchemy of orchestrating and listening. As I was eating breakfast, I had a whole cascading reverie that I'll try to track here. I began to notice how easy the darkness was for me. The darkness felt like home. I didn't feel antagonistic with my mind. I began to appreciate that. As a way of being, I seem to have an intuitive grace when relating to my interior world. Years of practice listening to the unconscious, through dreams, slips of the tongue, associative memories, facial expressions, and body language, seems to have attuned me to the nature of the unconscious. And while that nature is dynamic and spontaneous, it also leaves clues that reveal an underlying order. But most fundamentally, the unconscious has taught me faith, to trust. I have an absolute trust in the goodness, beauty, and truth of the unconscious when it is listened to. So the darkness was effortless for me in a way that surprised me. But what I realized is that the cost of my interior grace is that I tend to not strategize. Specifically, I have shied away for the most part of my life from trying to transform my life into what I want to be. What I mean by this is the nature of the unconscious has taught me how to basically go with the flow. But the cost of going with the flow is you don't mold reality to your vision. With the birth of children coming over the horizon of my life, I can feel that I am called to hone my ability to strategize. But most spiritual people will flinch when they hear this, thinking that to strategize is an inherently anti-spiritual that the proper way of being is to listen and to flow with the universe and with whatever it presents. As with all good things, the alchemy is in the synthesis, the combination. There's a great story a good friend of mine sometimes shares with groups when he presents workshops. There was once a council of elder women who gathered whenever something significant in the tribe needed to be worked out. To signal the beginning of the council, they would light a sacred pipe. One of the younger elders attempted to light the pipe, but each time that she did so, the wind would blow it out. After three attempts, she concluded to the council that this was a sign from the great spirit that the council was not meant to convene that day. The eldest woman asked for the pipe. She covered it with her other hand, and she lit it. When she passed it back, she said, Sometimes it's just wind. I think a metaphor that will help the spiritually inclined to think of strategy is orchestration or orchestrating. To orchestrate is to arrange the elements of a situation to produce a desired outcome. When we throw a party for a friend, we are engaging in orchestrating. When we want to birth a book or a workshop or an album or a ceremonial container, we are orchestrating. The beauty of civilization when it is beautiful, is the embodied act of orchestrating. 
all of our architecture and infrastructure, our roads, plumbing, electricity, communication technologies, flights and surgeries, and even parenting are acts of orchestration. Implied in the act of orchestrating is listening. A good host has a plan for the evening. A great host will change that plan after attempting it and then listening to whether or not the plan was right. The younger elder was a good listener, but the elder elder was a great listener. Sometimes it is just the wind. For me, the block to orchestrate more deeply the fabric of my life to conform to my dreams had to do with not trusting myself. I was afraid that any orchestration equaled manipulation. With recent experiences over the last few years, I trust myself now. I can now feel that a critical part of my next evolution in my life is to step more into orchestrating. What is the difference between orchestration and manipulation? When does listening become a cover for fear, resistance, and cowardice? When is it really just the wind? When does strategy become control and deceit and denial? To what degree ought a father strategize? Where along the spectrum of orchestration to manipulation does a good heart corrode? Questions always bear more fruit than answers. Confronting the woman eater. After a few hours of meandering between snacks, working out, and meditating, I eventually found myself back in bed after lunch. In the same way it took a couple of minutes the previous day for me to experience an insight, the same thing happened today. I quickly found my daydreams bringing me face to face with a dark force. A few years ago, I had a very challenging ayahuasca ceremony where I made contact with the force that I called the woman eater. The encounter started with a dream that I had the morning before our next day of drinking the brew. I was in what felt like a Roman Colosseum. The audience was full and we were looking at a young, attractive woman standing on top of a bus with a black monster circling her from the ground. The beast had the body of a lion, the head of a hydra, and the biology of venom from the Spider-Man movies. The entire creature looked and felt like the symbiote that creates venom and carnage. The beast found its way onto the bus and began to tear the woman apart with its jaws. The actual dream was more violent, but I don't need to replay that part of the song. The important part is that that creature came to visit me that evening when I drank, and it resulted in one of the hardest ayahuasca experiences that I've had to date. Well, the creature returned in the darkness. From my inner eye's perspective, I was watching my mind float from scene to scene to different desires, past experiences, and potential futures when I suddenly found myself directly in front of this monster. It was a few feet from me looking me directly in the eyes. There wasn't fear, but there was a clear message. The message was that this thing was a part of me and that I would have to face it at some point in the darkness. When I encountered this force the first time in ayahuasca, I tried to explain it away as me tapping into the quote-unquote collective archetype, which is a great Jungian way to avoid integrating something uncomfortable. Somehow I knew there was nothing I needed to do in that moment and that I could trust that when it was ready to be worked with, something would happen. So I simply noted that it arose and that I was open and available for whatever wanted to be made contact with. A funny aside, 
By the time the woman eater insight ended, I thought I was at most an hour away from dinner. I could feel that I had been up for at least 10 hours, and so if I woke up at 7, it must be time to eat soon. After what felt like another hour, I started to believe Scott would arrive with the food any moment. I waited in that feeling of any moment now for four hours, at least what felt like four hours, and I've never experienced that type of time disorientation. At first, I thought maybe he was just late. But then as time went on, I started to wonder whether or not this was some kind of test. Maybe they don't bring food on this day. As the hours rolled on, I began to actually worry that maybe Scott had gotten sick or hurt or fell down the mountain or something. Finally, around what felt like 11 p.m. at night, I heard the outside door of the dark room open and I felt tremendous relief. There was going to be food this day, thank God, hallelujah. Scott was okay, he didn't die and I could at least talk to someone for a moment. I quickly asked God if he had purposefully come later today than the previous days, and he paused a bit confused, and he said, no, it's it's almost the exact same time that I came yesterday. And I just stood in the darkness, dumbfounded and confused. The only thing that made sense was that I must have woken up at like 3 a.m. thinking that it was 8 a.m., A lot of sleeping happens the first 24-hour period, so my circadian rhythm had probably been jumbled. Before he left, he dropped another bomb of an insight on me, and he quoted Chokim Trumpa. As long as you regard yourself or any part of your experience as, quote, the dream come true, then you are involved in an act of self-deception. I'm going to say that again. Because when this motherfucker said this to me in the darkness at the end of day three, he might as well have shot me in my astral forehead. Okay. As long as you regard yourself or any part of your experience as the dream come true, then you are involved in an act of self-deception. Man. That quote made my eyes water and I started laughing. Just like the night before, I let that quote roll through me as I drew my bath. I let it massage me as I soaked in hot water, and I laughed at it while I brushed my teeth, and I cuddled it as I laid down for sleep at the end of my second full day in the darkness. Day four. I had a weird collection of dreams that night that I'm choosing to believe are worth recording here. Number one is the Balder dream. The first is a kind of Christ dream where there was a sacred piece of land where the Norse god Balder had been crucified. Because of the nuances of his mythology, there was a band of vengeful Nordic spirits killing people who passed through the land. Well, one day a hero came along and cooked a stew on the land, and the stew drew in the spirit of the vengeful killers, and the hero ate the stew and imbued with hate He alchemized it all. I woke up and was like, yeah, I'll record that one. Next dream is the veil dream. The next dream I had was very vivid. I really wanted to say veil vivid, but this is my way of saying it without having said it. Okay. I remember a lot from it, but for the sake of brevity, I will give the abbreviated version. It felt like I was watching a movie and the introduction of the movie was offering establishing shots of a ski city. Some place like Aspen or Vale. 
The first set of characters that was being introduced to this film are best described as warring gangs of Norwegian death metal fans that had decided to run a ski town. In hindsight, there is a very clear carryover from the Balder dream to this dream, but I didn't realize it then. I saw all kinds of scenes of these gangs competing, threatening, and attacking each other. It somehow was intimidating to watch, although it sounds hilarious to write. The dream settled on what felt like a lower middle class family that had to take care of a rich family's home. The vibe was that the day's tasks were nearly impossible to complete, but if they didn't complete them, the family would die. I entered the dream at this point and tried to help the family. We went on a few adventures, and we got to the point where we felt that we had failed. The mother I'd been helping began to cry, imagining her family being killed later that day. And after a while of sitting with her pain, I told her, let's just try anyway. Let's do the best job we can with the time that we have left. She agreed, and we ended up doing a good enough job, just barely, to not be killed that day. The dream ended with me hearing a disembodied voice say something like, no matter how bad, the world starts to improve as soon as we decide to enter it. A tip for dream trackers, if you hear a disembodied voice, write it the fuck down. I woke up in awe with the feeling that my psyche, my unconscious, had spoken directly to me and gave me a message. This next dream is just goofy, so I'm calling it joke dream. Really do dreams make me laugh, but this dream did. I felt I was at a kind of fit-for-service event and that I was on stage and someone asked me a question and they asked, Eric, please tell us about how dangerous you are. Amused by the question and feeling playful, I rattled off the following. Physically, I'm as dangerous as a goat. Emotionally, I'm as dangerous as a dream. Culturally, I'm as dangerous as a vision. And spiritually, I'm as dangerous as a joke. I woke up thinking, that's pretty good. So whatever you want to do with that, I wanted to write it down. All right. The lights. It's hard to express how the darkness feels like it's a different dimension. I had forgotten the lights start sparking alive around the 72-hour mark. So when I started seeing a soft pulsing light at the top corner of my field of darkness, I was astonished. Now, a quick reminder, the reason a lot of people do the darkness retreat is after about three to four days, the complete absence of light triggers a transformation in something happening in your biology where you start to produce an inner light. And it is incomparable to anything else that I've experienced. It's truly unique. Okay, back to, the, back to your scheduled programming. It happened as I was eating my first snack of the day after getting up from my dreams. I just started uttering, wow, over and over again. I had been in complete, absolute darkness for the last three days. To see any kind of light was awesome. But to know that this light was emanating from me was a type of experience I've never had before. Even more than that, the light brightened and dimmed to a rhythm. It had a kind of heartbeat to it. Its rhythm was not in sync with my heart's. Sometimes it had a BPM of something like 40, and at times it was like 140. We were going from jazz to techno. 
After sitting and basking in it for a while, what I realized was that this light's rhythm was the rhythm of the pulsing of my pineal gland. It was like I was able to see the life force in my pineal gland ebb and flow in my field of awareness. It was truly phenomenal. I was overcome with the feeling that I was in the presence of something like a massive whale. That whatever I was in relationship to, the unconscious that produced this light was like what a person is to those huge oceanic giants. I felt a radical and profound intimacy with the whale of my unconscious as I basked in the light. Because of the simplicity, because of the sobriety, because there was nothing exogenous and this was all endogenous, this was one of the most sacred experiences of my life. Alchemizing the woman eater. Y'all, we're about to get fucking weird here, so buckle up. Here we enter the crescendo of my healing in the darkness. <laughs> buckle up, we're going to go on a ride. At some indeterminable time, I felt the woman eater come back as a long sequence of epiphanies and insights. When I was around 10 or 12, I saw a female comedian make a joke on TV that all the good guys are either gay or uncircumcised. The combination of the crowd's laughter and the smirk on the comedian's face was the just right combination to sear shame into me for not being circumcised. From the age of 15 to 20, I had many opportunities to be sexually intimate with women, and I would always say no out of shame. Sometimes it was out of integrity if they were either drunk or in a relationship with one of my friends, but most of it was shame. My avoidance got so intense that I had multiple women who previously had tried to sleep with me accuse me of being gay because I wouldn't have sex with them or their friend. I had sex for the first time when I was 20, and I just put those five years out of my mind. What I realized in the dark was that every one of those encounters that I had with women from the age of 15 to 20 were the substrate of the woman hater energy in me. Every time a woman expressed sexual interest in me from age 15 to 20, my first feeling was shame. But the more subtle feeling was anger. I was mad at the women who triggered shame in me. I realized in the darkness that all of these encounters made up the psychological constellation in me that served as the body of the woman eater in me, the part of me that hates women because it's afraid of women. Because of what I know about trauma, and with Adrian's session fresh on my mind, I knew the next move was to quote-unquote complete the process. So I used my supercharged imagination to see my current self going back to the 15-year-old me and giving him all of my memories, all of my knowledge, and all of my confidence. And then for the next few hours, I imagined my teenage self re-experience each of those 30-something encounters with this new knowledge and confidence. To be blunt but graphic, I visualized each of these experiences culminating in sex while I masturbated without reaching orgasm. AKA, if you know about sex, magic, and tantra, this won't be crazy to you. If you don't, I appreciate you being open-minded while we go through this. Okay. 
I then imagined the most painful experience of these set of experiences. There was one relationship in particular where she and I were clearly in that kind of love that repressed high schoolers are able to be in. And one day she angrily asked me if I was gay because I never made a move on her. I watched myself say the words that I'd never been able to say, and I imagined us completing the unfinished process we had never been able to do. Then I placed each experience visually in a pearl inside of a spiraling web. And in the middle of that web, I placed the image of my fiance in her full radiant sexual self. I saw her energy begin to pulse from the core of the web and begin to turn the black web and the gray pearls into bright red and shimmering pink. I felt her energy spreading and digesting all of those memories. I felt the safety, sensuality, rapture, and unbounded compassion that she has for me, and I watched it alchemize those years of pain. And I imagined myself making love to her as I saw the web of these memories consumed by her passion and eros. Graphic. I then proceeded to have one of the most intense orgasms of my life. It was great. And I knew in a way I didn't understand how that I had completed and therefore cleared something that had been open and festering in me for a long time. All of this was spontaneous. I had no preconceived notions. I've never done anything like this before. And I was surprised by it too. You know, but this is what happens when you listen. And those are all great clues that you are likely in the realm of the unconscious, that two million year old creature that dreams. When you're doing shit you don't understand, but that is fascinating and feels like it's right. These are the kind of things lurking in our psyche that we call monsters and demons and dark forces. They are parts of us that are hurt, that have been denied, and who haunt us because they need us to liberate them. I'm grateful to the dark for providing me the space to let this complete itself. The Regenerative City Project. After that experience, I took a nice, deep, restful nap. When I woke up, I felt a profound peace. I was told by a mentor of mine who had done multiple dark retreats to wait until the last day, after resting as deeply as you can, to ask whatever life questions that you would like to have answered. This was now the time to begin dreaming into my future. As I laid in bed, I asked the big questions. What do I want to do with my life? What do I want to create? What do I want to offer the world? Instantly, what arose was a crystallization of a constellation of ideas that I've been playing with for the last few years. Two years ago, I encountered existential risk theory, that humanity faces a set of problems that if we do not come together to face, the chances of us going extinct are high. Nuclear Armageddon, ecological collapse, biological warfare, and the weaponization of artificial intelligence are the four horsemen of this apocalypse. Existential risk theory destroyed my selfish personal dream of making enough money to buy a piece of land to retreat from the world so that I could have the life that I wanted with my family. Sound familiar? I see this dream as the goal of many spiritual people. Because they have lost hope in humanity, they believe the way to win the game of life is to retreat from the beast. This doesn't work for me. What I aspire to do is to do what I can to help heal the beast, 
because the beast is strong enough to erase the future for my children's children's children, and me buying a piece of land will buy me a generation, but not my children's children's. A few months after encountering these existential ideas, I had a powerful breathwork experience where I spontaneously received the idea that my magnum opus is to create a, quote, regenerative city. I don't know what the fuck that means, but I wrote it down in my notebook and I let it sit like a seed in my psyche. A few months after I helped create Arcadia, a transformational music festival with a core theme of envisioning and living in the more beautiful world our hearts knows is possible, we brought luminaries together to begin starting the conversations of what this future would look like. People like Zach Bush and Paul Chak talked about medicine in this potential future. Matias Stefanos and Robert Edward Grant talked about spirituality in this future. And Charles Eisenstein talked about the economics in this future. A few months after Arcadia, I read a book called Building the Cathedral. The profound insight of this book is that cathedrals were multi-generational projects. The average cathedral took 300 years to build. To build a cathedral confesses that a culture cares about the future. It confesses a collective story of hope that there will be a culture 300 years in the future that will benefit from the labor of this generation. All of this culminated in the realization that I want to offer my life to building a kind of cathedral. The name, The Regenerative City Project, came to mind, and as I said it out loud in the darkness, there was a loud crack that erupted from the fireplace. A piece of wood snapped in half. The fire had not been lit for over a day, and no snapping like that had happened the entire time that I had been in the darkness. I've had enough experiences like this where the only proper response is to laugh until you cry. So I laughed until I cried. I picked up my recorder and I spoke these words. The breakthrough came through. The vision of my life, professionally, vocationally, is a regenerative city project. And the Regenerative City Project is a nonprofit that gives out grants to artists to contribute to the schematics of a future city. Cathedra, my company, is a vision for a university in this future city. Hermea, the name of the goddess that I pray to, is a vision for a hospital in this future city. The Regenerative City Project is a multi-generational vision for artists to contribute to, to create the blueprint of a future regenerative city. Cities might be the only thing that can survive atom bombs. We saw that in World War II. Cities are arguably the most complex technological creation in the known universe. Cities, especially a project like this, gives hope. It helps orient artists that whatever your craft is, if you so choose to dedicate it towards this, it can contribute to creating a regenerative city. There are a few things here. One is that this is a testament that we are going to stay and help Earth. We're not going to go run off and get our little piece of land, and we're not going to blast off to Mars. So what is a regenerative city? There is room for all sorts of contributions. And I love the idea of nonprofits that give grants to artists. End voice note. My primary goal for the rest of this year is to get more clear on this vision. In the same way the Founding Fathers came together 
argued, debated, and collaborated until they produced a system of ideas that eventually birthed our country. I want to gather a group of people to begin arguing, debating, and collaborating until we produce a system of ideas that can birth a city of the future. They'll take the best of what I have to attempt to do this, and maybe it will fail, but the message of my dream rings in my ears. No matter how bad, the world starts to improve as soon as we decide to enter it. Eventually, dinner came, and I knew that I had done it. Tomorrow, I would be emerging from the darkness. I ate with the pulsing lights. I bathed as they got stronger. And while I, it was harder to fall asleep because of the fucking light show, I eventually fell asleep accompanied by my own inner glowing Buddha. Day five, final day. God dream. On this last night in the darkness, I dreamt that I was playing a five-on-five pickup game in a large auditorium. I played great. Every shot felt perfect, and they all went in. I remember making a half-court shot to win the game, and as we were all saying good game to each other, a black lesbian woman who had been one of the best players on the court pointed over my right shoulder and said, damn, that's some god shit. I turned to look where she was pointing, and like a movie scene, my entire field of vision was a massive cathedral-shaped window, where the cross beams of the window created the shape of a cross, it felt religious, and the beautiful golden evening light was pouring through the window. The vision felt deeply religious, and I woke up from the dream and I realized that my entire upper right field of vision in the darkness was being bathed in that same golden light. I laid there in awe, feeling the deep spiritual communion with this pulsing, brilliant, luminescent light. It was religious. I wept and I repeated, thank you. Eventually I ate breakfast and after a few more hours in the dark, I heard the front door open. Scott was there to bring me into the light. I found a blindfold in the darkness. I put it on and I let him gently bring me out of what had been my home for the last four days. You can go to my Instagram and check out my reaction. It fucking blew up. It got like 1.1 million views and it's fucking weird. Epilogue. I can feel in my bones that darkness retreats will be a fundamental part of my life. I loved it. It brings me into communion with my beloved unconscious unlike anything that I have done before. Primarily because nothing is being added, there is only subtraction. And in the subtraction, there is a profound revelation. It is the process by which we remove the mud on the Golden Buddha. As a student of Jungian psychology, I want to sit with the visions that begin to arise after five or six days. I can also feel the incredible healing that arises from the deep rest that comes to us when we relax into the void. I believe this is a great balancing tool for modern minds. And most importantly, it is a container where we get to commune in radical intimacy with the multi-million-year-old living intelligence that beats our hearts and dream our dreams. I love that being like a Christian loves Jesus, the way a Buddhist loves Buddha, and the way Laura Huxley loved Aldous Huxley. Thank you for reading, and I hope that this inspires you to consider a trip into the darkness. I hope you too find the light there. Quote, less is more, even less is even more, and nothing is everything. P.S. Here's a poem that came from the dark. I'm sorry that you have been lied to. 
that you believed that you had to do anything to heal, to be cared for, to know God, you don't. What you weren't told was your birthright, that if you just stopped doing for long enough, you would notice God's breath on your cheek, that you are being held by the boundless, timeless Mother Father. You would know now that you are ready to finally grieve the tragedies of your life, quake and seethe your resentment, spit your disgust and revel in your lust. You would know that you are ready to give up pretending that you don't feel everything.